Good morning. Uh, and let's get started. Uh, this is now the first midterm. Uh, we will tomorrow have a WebEx-only lecture on how to prepare for the midterm. Uh, so I suggest you that the reasons for that lecture being given WebEx is that I want all of you to become familiar with the system in order to make it easier for you to participate in the get uh, lectures even if you can't physically come to this location. So please attend that. We will, in tomorrow's lecture, when we look at uh, preparation for the midterm, I will show you all questions from previous midterms, uh, and I will go into more detail uh, than today. I will show you what you are supposed to read. Tomorrow we will go into more detail about what, is, what are the things that I consider more important uh, in the various chapters. Uh, uh, than other things, so that will help you guide uh, your reading for the midterms. So please, uh, tomorrow there will be, or will there will be, be something here in the lecture hall. Um, it depends how many of you would like to come here instead of um, staying home or going to a, a computer class at Marlins or So actually we would have... Uh, how many, how many yeah. absolutely want to come to the lecture hall tomorrow instead of finding a computer that wish to participate in the okay, three, four, five? Okay. So I guess it's more than five, you will have to come here. Yeah. I will be in my office though. So I won't be here. Uh, you will see my computer screen and hear my beautiful voice. If you come here, from your own computer, there are additional benefits because it will be easier for you to interact because you can both chat with me and the other students as well as talk if you have a headset. So what we're trying to do tomorrow is to have an interactive lecture over using uh, WebEx. We'll see how it all works out. But if you absolutely can't find a computer or would like to come here and have coffee with your friends, feel free to do so and. and uh, really can turn the vo volume down so my lecture won't disturb you so much. Okay. Any questions with respect to this so far? Okay. Today we are actually, I decided another practical thing. I decided to drop the metrics part from, which will be a shorter lecture. I will give a separate two hour lecture in the second part of the course on metrics. Uh, so software configuration management, which will be included in this first meeting. But let's get started. Well, first of all, the reasoning behind the whole idea of configuration management uh, is the fact that in software development, things change. So no matter if we are in the early stages or in the late stages of developing a software system, we will have changes to various things that we need to deal with. And now, what, kind of, what, what things do you think change in software development. What, what, what kind of changes do we uh, have that we need to deal with and manage? Uh, it's always difficult with the first question. Okay, so again, find a friend, ask your friend, and then today you will have the opportunity to, to ask your friend to answer my questions. So think about the various kinds of changes that we get in software development by discussing with your friends first. And we have a few loaners here. Without, you might find a mirror and discuss with yourself. 
the most intelligent friend here. Okay, great. Congratulations. <laughs> so, give an example, either one of you. <laughs> well, um, uh, I think that uh, funding Funding might change. So, we might, uh, what, 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 why would we need to deal with that? requirements or features change and we need to deal with that, yes, which might be due to, for example, funding constraints. Very good. Yes? Yes? The operating environment might change, for example, from uh, Windows 3.1 to Windows 95, so you have to change the program. Excellent point, something that many people will think of when they talk about configuration management. The operating environment might change, grating our software. And this is also something that we need to be very clear on. Which operating environment hasn't been tested and so on. Good point. Other one? Other changes? Yes? What else? Of course, the thing that often people start with as code is the actual code will change. The code is the thing we develop that keeps changing all the time. We need to manage the changes that we get from code. Anything else? That's all? Yes. The users change. The users might change. We might get new, about the, that might be reflected in new features, feature requests, or new uh, uh, new requirements. Yes? Okay, so personnel changes. Yes. Personnel and user stakeholder changes. Okay, what else? If we look at the artifacts produced in the project. Of course, all related documentation that we deal with keeps evolving and changing. Uh, anything else? Related closely to uh, the point you made about the operating system changes. Yeah. Overall architecture. Okay, the overall architecture, so technical issues, yes. There's one more thing. Deadline. Okay, project plan, deadlines, features, yes. I'm looking at uh, a more technical thing. Yeah. Well, it's related to the operating system, but also a new bug Okay, we must discover new bugs leading us to change the code and documentation and so on. Yes. Another thing. One more thing. One more thing. <laughs> yes. Hardware might change. Yes. Yes. Yes, thank you. That was the one I was looking for in particular because uh, uh, the fact that we change it, for example, we might change, for example, the version of a compiler, or we get new library versions of libraries and so on. That might also give us new bugs. Things that have worked before due to, for example, even new bugs in, in compilers. Uh, and, software. So, uh, for and this, this, this means that, for example, knowing if we have a wor working version uh, when they might find a bug, it might be that uh, 
the software when we compile it using a newer system is different. So we, it's, we, for example, we, due to changes in tools or environments, it's impossible for us to reproduce a bug because we don't get the same binary and we don't have the same binary. So knowing the ex exact details of the tools used, the versions of the various libraries and tools used, and the inoperation of various sites is something we need to deal with. And this is uh, configuration management tries to deal with all of these issues. So we get changes to business requirements, changes to technical requirements, changes changes in user changes in with respect to the project, budget, uh, stakeholders, and so on. And the things we need to keep up to date and manage get reflected are the actual models of the software, the designs, the code, the data, the documentation, and the project plan. So there are lots of, of various kinds of uh, artifacts uh, that we need to uh, manage. And configuration management deals with managing these documents and the changes. Very typically, if we work version control, uh, and, and, uh, which is an important part of configuration management, is the fact that when we uh, have a team of people working on a piece of software, there are essentially three basic problems that we need, at least need to solve. So let's say that we have a, a team of two, two, Will and me, working on the same piece of software. Why might we need to think about configuration management? It doesn't mean that we absolutely need to use a tool, but we need to think about three basic problems that we need to solve. So, first of all, uh, let's say we have a master copy and then we start editing uh, the software. If Ville has his own computer, I have my own, we might run into a double maintenance problem. We have uh, different copies on two computers. We need somehow to reconcile the changes. So this is something that you all know if several people edit a single file at the same time, it needs to be merged later. And we need to support that process somehow. Uh, they want another solution, uh, intuitive solution might be to, okay, let's say well, let's, we have only one file on a single server, then we will have the shared file. Or if we don't do that, we, we would uh, end up with a double maintenance problem, essentially making several copies of the same file. And finally, uh, we might have the simultaneous update problem, which is uh, related to the double maintenance problem. That is, we have a master file on the server where we need to edit it. We check out or copy versions of that. Will has one copy, I have one copy. We both do our changes. Then we need to reconcile those changes, or if otherwise my changes might get overwritten if I first update the server. Uh, file and then we'll update his server file. If he doesn't know that I have updated that file, all my changes will get lost. So these are the basic simple problems that uh, lead to the need for managing versions and managing uh, 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 configurations. And of course, this doesn't. This holds true for all kinds of files. It holds true for the project plan document. It holds true for the different code files that we have. So enter on, on the stage 
the discipline or practice of software configuration management. Software configuration management uh, is often many people think only of version management, but it actually consists of several other activities as well. So software configuration management is an important support process in software engineering that covers version management, uh, versioning of files and documents, or artifacts involved in software development. It deals with build management, automating and managing the building, the compilation, linking, and so on, production of executables for uh, software. We have, again, as many of you know, we have several good tools used, traditional tools make, and now we have several others, more modern tools, helping us do that. It deals with change management, which uh, often is considered more uh, a process issue than a strict tool issue. That is, how do we deal with the change request, the changes we get to the software. Then we have the bureaucratic part, which is status accounting. That is, how do we record and report all the changes, everything that happens. This is very often built into uh, the tools we use. And the final activity included here is release management. That is, how do we build and package the things, the software, the documentation, everything that we ship. So these are the essential processes in software configuration management uh, that we deal with. Let's start with version management, which is uh, where it all uh, started. So we need version management because during the lifetime of a system, we know that we have lots of, of changes. So there are many reasons we might need to be able to revert back to own versions all the files. In order to do troubleshooting, uh, in particular for replicating problems that our customers might have. So this means that if we have a single executable ship to all customers, we just need to uh, do something that's called tagging, so we know the exact versions of every file that have been included in the builds that have been shipped uh, to the customers. Uh, or we must also need it to be able to revert to a tested and working version. Different versions might be incompatible due to many of the reasons you already mentioned, mainly the technical issues, uh, due to changes in tools, operating environments, hardware, and so on. So now, let's go a bit deeper. Uh, in configuration management and version control, the basic uh, item that we deal with is called a configuration item. That's a general term for anything that is put under configuration control. So anything that is versioned. It can be a, a file. Uh, it can be uh, typically a file. It can be a document, a component of the software. Typically, it, it is physically a file from the uh, operating system's point of view. And this is the atomic unit, so a, a configuration item doesn't contain other configuration items. It's something that is versioned atomically. And now we have some important uh, related terminology. We have the term version. A version is an instance of a configuration item of, uh, that differs from another instance, or from the other instances of the config configuration item. So. Let's say you have a file, uh, you write something in it, and save it. That is one, one, one version of that configuration item, if you put that file under version control. 
when you make a change to the file and save it again in the configuration management system, often using, for example, something called a check-in, then you get a different version. It differs from the previous version. So we have the concept of version. Oh, welcome. Glad you could make it today. All right. Then we have two different kinds of versions. So uh, we have something called revisions and variants. Okay. So uh, we have variants, like for example, variants, if you can see what the picture here, it's something called a version tree. We have version uh, 1, version 2, uh, which here are revisions. And then we have variants, variant trees M and D, which is the maintenance and the development trees. So a variant is an alternative. Typically, it doesn't add additional functionality, but it's technically different from another variant. So we might have variants of a file, for example, for, let's say, different uh, typical examples would be for different operating system versions, or if we have a print driver, it might be different variants for different printers. So they would be functionally equal, typically, but they are, are, are alternatives to uh, other variants for the same configuration item. And then we have revisions, which replace all typically, they, those would be the typical versions you think of, they replace previous or older versions, older revisions. Revisions replace each other, variants are optional. You select either one. So those are, the variants and revisions are two terms that uh, two types of versions that we deal with in version. So these are concepts that are good to know. Variants uh, are optional, you can select one of them. Revisions aren't optional in the sense that you typically work with uh, the latest revision, the latest version. Or you tag revisions, for example, you tag certain revisions and files and this is the release, uh, the release revision, release versions of a file. Variants might get merged. Uh, so here we have again a version tree. You can see version 1, 2, then we have uh, branched our versions into development branch and maintenance branch. And then when we, uh, for example, fix bugs here in the maintenance branch, we might want to merge those changes also into the development branch, and uh, then we need to do a merge. We typically need to do in practice the merges in particular for code manually. We have tools that help us do that. For example, this that shows us which uh, 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 different lines in various versions differ, uh, and that help us do that. And many IDEs today uh, help you show graphically and very, very visually uh, what has changed to help it, to make it easier for you, for example, to merge and com compare and then merge uh, variants. All right, so that is 
we have a configuration item, and configuration items are versions, and versions are of two types, revisions and variables. Now then, what happens when we have lots of configuration items? So we have a bunch of configuration items, we can use them to form a configuration. And now a configuration is then a set of logically connected configuration items. For example, it's easiest to understand that as uh, a collection of uh, configuration item versions. So one configuration that is really simple to understand, for example, uh, is what's called the current configuration. Uh, or the work set. That is typically the newest revisions, the newest versions of all files. The thing that we get by default if we uh, work with uh, a version control system. That is the work set or current configuration. Then we also have other typical configurations that, that are important from the software development point of view. In particular from an historic point of view. Uh, we might have Let's take a baseline configuration. Uh, that is a permanent configuration, typically done by tagging revisions. So we might set a tag. They're saying that uh, this is release candidate one. And then we set that tag to all revisions of the files that we deal with. And then we can continue developing and working with the software, but we can always get back to the tagged uh, configuration. So it's possible to return to that configuration, get the right uh, versions of all files included in the configuration, despite the fact that we still evolve those files. And then we have another important, typically, is the release uh, 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 configuration, which is uh, all uh, files that are included, are that are included in the release, which typically is different uh, in the sense that uh, it's just a subset of everything we have. We tag only the documents that are included in a release. So it might be executables and other things. So the important concepts here, configuration items that are versioned, and configurations that are collections of uh, configuration items. And then we have various version control systems that help us deal with these configurations. Many of you probably know systems like Subversion or CDS. Those would be the typical systems you use to actually help you manage uh, the various configurations and versions of your files. But despite, uh, in addition to the technical definition here, in a, uh, from, from a version control point of view, of the, a baseline configuration, examples of which might be a release or release candidate, uh, we have a process issue here also that says that it means something more than just a tag that you uh, say that a certain configuration is a baseline. Here you can see uh, a definition of a baseline from uh, our software engineering standard, which says that a baseline from the software development management point of view, in particular a specification of product that has been formally reviewed and agreed upon, so it means it's an important configuration, and thereafter serves as the basis for further development, and that can be changed only through a formal change procedure. So it says essentially that when we tag something as a baseline, uh, 
it means that it's frozen. In, if we want to change things from that baseline, we need to do that formally. So it can be a feature freeze or something else, and then we are only allowed, for example, to, to uh, change uh, bugs, bugs by bug fixing, or if we need to do other changes, uh, we have a formal way of dealing with that. So it's a day, we can view that as a milestone. Uh, and typically, it's related to the delivery of some uh, set of configuration items. It can also be uh, the, uh, the, you get a baseline project plan. It's not something that's related only to code. For example, when you plan the project, you have your pro project plan under version control. You get lots of new versions, uh, revisions typically. This is often a single document. And then you freeze it. You say, this is the baseline. This is the approved version uh, 1.0 of the project plan. It means that now it sets an end to the fact that it changes every day. Then if you want to change the project plan after you have baselined it, you have frozen it, uh, then you need to deal typically with the steering group and so on and deal with the changes more formally. Whereas in the planning stage, when you develop the project plan, if you wish, uh, you can make new versions as often as you need to. So baselining is uh, technically in version control systems is often an act of tagging. Uh, but it's from the process point of view, it's an important decision made in a project to baseline something. It means that it's frozen. To change it after that requires a heavier process. So we have the term baseline, and we often use the verb baselining to mean that we base, that, that we decide that something is at the baseline stage. This is actually already discussed enough, I think. Okay. So then, in particular, when we have baseline something, we need to do what's called formal change management. And this is the second part of software configuration management. And it says that the idea here is that changes to approved items must be controlled formally. So change management then is a process, a procedure for doing that, by which we, when we did changes, the client changes his mind or whatever, uh, we have a procedure by which we evaluate, request, evaluate, approval, reject, schedule, and then implement and track changes. So here the idea is that we can freeze changes. And this is something that, that, that actually is important also if we do even agile development in which we say that things can change. It still means that we have a way of dealing with those changes. So also in agile development, we need to deal with change management, though it looks different uh, in implementation than in the waterfall model. But as you might remember, for example, in Scrum, you freeze uh, uh, the moral, freeze the, the things that you develop during one sprint. If you do lots of changes to that, you need to cancel the sprint and restart it. You are not allowed to change everything. You typically drop features. But you, if you need to reshuffle the set of of, 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 of battle items or features that you implement during a sprint, you should cancel the sprint and replan it. You're not allowed to replan the sprint every day. That is not the idea. So the idea, even in agile development, is to have a baseline that you work with, a baseline plan for what you're going to do, and then uh, have a, you have a set of uh, change management procedures for dealing with the changes. 
So the change management process, per se, is typically very simple and very logical. So there's no black magic here. So it typically looks something like this. It's from, the slides are from the book, so there might be different versions, but let's uh, look at uh, Preston's version of it. Typically, you have a need for change. Some stakeholder thinks that something needs to be changed. You often get uh, a change request. So in some organizations, they even have forms that you need to fill in a change request. As many of you know, uh, typical bug databases or issue trackers, Jira, Bugzilla, whatever, uh, can also be used to fill in requests for changes uh, as bugs or future requests. So this would be an example of that. You fill in a future request or change request in a form that somebody looks at and evaluates what's involved, how we do this, and so on. Typically, it can be the project manager, the developer, and so on. And you develop uh, more detailed reports of, with a better understanding of what actually implementing that change might entail, how much work is involved, what things will get affected by doing this change, and so on. And I gave the example now here on Bunting also for those of you who have looked at open source projects. You know that much of, many of them are more or less managed totally uh, by change management procedures. You have a baseline, you have uh, ship versions and then the discussions and, and, and uh, things much is handled uh, using change management systems or bug tracking systems. They tend to, uh, in practice, be the same. Okay, but and then you have a better understanding of what's involved in part discussions over email or by meetings if you are in an organization, and then somebody has the authority to decide. So this is the person. Somebody decides: Can we do it? Will we do it at all? Will we do it now? Will we do it later? Included in next version assigned to developer X, skipped to the next degrees. Not important at all. Dropped. We won't do this change. We have somebody who has the authority. It can be, and it's always clear, or should be clear, who has the authority to decide. Is it a meeting? It can be a formal group of people called a change control board. Or it can be a lead developer, an architect, the project manager, whomever. It depends on what kind of project we are in. But there is a clear uh, uh, understanding of who is allowed to decide. And then we either cure it for action or deny it. Let's uh, proceed thinking that we cured it for action. Then we need to assign people to the configuration items that are change, uh, uh, affected by the change control. Then we check them out, we make the change, we test the change, uh, review or audit, and then we do a low-level testing, then we establish a baseline for testing. So this is checking out, uh, implementing the changes to the documents or the code, and doing smoke testing for them. Then we would test uh, the effects of the change. Uh, and here it's important to do both, uh, uh, to do also regression testing. Why is regression testing important when we do uh, changes to software? Just check that you remember what we talked about. Yeah. No, we didn't break something. So we know that our change didn't break something that used to work, exactly. So that is why we need uh, typically, it's beneficial to have a set of automated tests because then it's easier and quicker to do regression testing. Test that we didn't unintentionally break something, uh, for example, in a totally different part of the software. Okay, then we would check in the change items and 
I'm saying that they are ready for inclusion in the next release. So we can, if you have a big system, we can rebuild the appropriate versions and approve the change and include the change in the release. This is typically a very fairly simple process, change management process, but it's very formal. We have clear uh, uh, responsibilities, clear authority for, uh, and, and, and rules for who can decide what. Now, uh, here is an example. As you all know, if you look at the issue tracking tools or bug management tools uh, used, uh, they can contain a lot of fields. And often the problem isn't uh, getting a field that is right for you. The problem is finding out which fields really need to be filled in and how. But typical things that we have in the change requests uh, would be info information on who, first of all, who thinks this change should be done? What is the description of the problem or the lack of feature that we have or whatever? Who found it or who thought it? In what, in, in what version and what are the problems we are trying to solve with this? So this is the first thing. This is the thing we need to get from the customer if they have a problem or from uh, the people, uh, whomever is involved in reporting or wanting something. If we have a large organization and we have lots of customers, we might have people answering the phone, uh, uh, filling in the change request when customers have problems. We have, might have a, a, a support organization with several support levels. Uh, or in some cases, our customers might fill in the change request forms themselves on the net. Or we might have uh, a combination of both. Then typically somebody who knows technically uh, something about the product, analyzes it and fills in the courses, the affected components, subsystems, uh, and tries to understand how much work is involved in doing the change. Uh, we typically also at this stage uh, do some kind of classification and prioritization. There is typically a problem uh, with, uh, in particular, big uh, corporate clients being uh, allowed to themselves prioritize bugs. Uh, if we have corporate clients, all bugs they found are critical and need to be fixed right away. So, uh, though it's important that we get customer feedback, it's very important that the actual prioritization uh, and decisions made uh, with respect to uh, when to implement the change and how and so to do it is made by people who understand understand it because there tends to be politics involved also when you have corporate customers wanting changes quickly. So in, in cases in which customers are allowed to prioritize bugs, unless you have very clear rules and read with them, then you can you will notice problems in that everything tends to be of highest priority and that's undoable for you. Okay. Then so then the analyst fills in the course and effort estimation, and then we have the authority deciding on uh, whether to fix, postpone, or drop. Uh, and also decides upon the responsible developer or developers. And the developer would then somehow log what has been done, actions taken, the chain, uh, affected files, do some release notes, even write change logs, whatever needed, and the actual efforts. If we have separate testers, we would have uh, a log on retesting and regression testing. Uh, and then we would also have some log that up here and in which release it actually got included. 
Now, a, a very important question that you need to deal with when you start thinking about configuration management and change management is the correct level. Uh, how bureaucratic, how formal should it be? Do we really need to log all even small changes in our system? Do we have, do we need to have everything logged and decided formally? Or can we do it more informally? Uh, the correct level of doing uh, change management, how strict to be, depends on lots of things. It depends on the criticality of the software, the size of the team, the kind of customers you have, the number of customers you have, your development process, uh, and so on, your release process. So uh, there are standards for change and configuration management that you can find uh, from IEEE, for example. There are several standards for software configuration management. They tend to be uh, good to view as a list of all the things that you might want to do, but not as a list of all the things that you absolutely need to do, because they tend to contain everything and a bit more. But they are very good for you as starting points when you think about the configuration management and change management processes. In addition, of course, to looking at the leading tools, because they typically tend to have fairly good processes and fields that help you actually decide upon how to do that. Okay. Any questions on change management? Okay. Then, very briefly, uh, on build management. Build management is managing the actual production, the manufacturing process, that is running the compilers, running the linkers, producing the executables that we need to be able, for example, to test and seek the software. Now, why is this important? Well, at some point in time, build management could be seen as very simple because if we don't have version control, we don't have uh, very big systems, we can, of course, always compile everything. But the larger system, systems we have, the less interesting it is to use work from a point of view of always compile everything. So we got build management tools that helped us understand uh, by us giving some information about dependencies and some logic built into it. Uh, build management tools help us compile only the things that have changed, changed only the things that really need to be compiled on it. And so build management is about uh, selecting the right sources needed for doing a build and performing the right steps to do the build and produce uh, the things that we need to do for a build. This is typically today automated by build tools that are either built into uh, our IDEs or external tools. So uh, this is a supporting activity that's, that is uh, extremely helpful because it saves a lot of computing time and also time for people by using build management tools. Uh, since building with build management tools uh, is, in many cases, quite fast, the build cycle can often be viewed as a heartbeat cycle of a project. Uh, when we do incremental development, we use a skeleton of the software, and then we add need to the bones. That is, we add features. Uh, so we always have something that compiles. So in, in those cases, we typically have a heartbeat of a build cycle. It can be a daily build or a weekly build, 
often we aim for daily units. There are many cases in which we have large complex systems in which we can't do a daily unit cycle for many reasons, but if we can, it's often a good idea. Because then we are also able to do scope tests on a daily basis, or we can show concrete progress in the sense of things that have been added and at least scope tested. And as you remember when we talked about the lifecycle models, frequent builds and automated tests help us reduce risk by minimizing the risks from an integration point of view. That is, we don't end up with a, uh, uh, with a situation in which we have various modules that don't fit together, that have been developed, for example, for months in some place and for months in other places, and then we try to integrate them and it doesn't work. So having a, a build cycle on a daily or weekly basis helps us minimize integration risk. It reduces quality risk since we see quality problems much quicker. Uh, uh, and also uh, makes it easier to debug because at least we know the things that have changed. Uh, and it has also been said to improve morale because coders like seeing uh, how a system evolves instead of coding for a long time in isolation and then hoping that everything will work out when we integrate the whole system. Okay. Uh, any comments or questions on build management? It's something that should be natural to most of you. Uh, about dealing with deals improving morale, I read, sometimes read somewhere that uh, there was this company that used to have a traffic light installed that would show red and the bill would pay like green when it was uh -huh. uh, successful. And then when that light went red, everyone was uh, very motivated to... To get the light green again. Yeah, yeah. 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 So essentially the light shows you just on software even compile, and everybody knows if it doesn't even compile, uh, or we have a problem with our daily bill, something is bad, something is wrong. Uh, we should stop drinking coffee and get back to code it, whatever. Yeah, so it, it gives you a very concrete view to progress and to the quality, at least uh, a very limited view, but no, view to quality. Yeah. Okay. Okay, then we have the bureaucratic side of, of software configuration management with its status accounting. Uh, Essentially, this is bookkeeping. In most cases, done by uh, uh, entering things into the tools that support our process. Of course, everything can be done manually as well. So, uh, typically, it, mean, it would mean that for each file or configuration item, we also have metadata. And the metadata that we have for uh, the configuration items would include things like status of the file. Meaning, uh, has it been tested? Is it in development? Is it new? Has it been approved for release? And so on. So, for the various configuration items, we have metadata containing, for example, status fields that associated uh, data with the status. When did the status change? Who changed the status? So, we get timestamps uh, for that. And, as you know, for also for uh, change requests or month requests, we typically have states. We have a state that it's open or it's uh, being analyzed, being implemented, implemented, tested, and so on. Closed is typically what you will find in the system, meaning we have dealt with it. It's okay, we can forget it. And we get timestamps for this. So status accounting is about uh, making the status also of the development visible. One way of getting a view to development is to look at 
the status information of all configuration items. If everything in the uh, change management system says that every, all bugs are closed, then we should know something about uh, how development proceeds. Status accounting can be done totally manually. Uh, it's typically not done manually anywhere today. It's done by practice today by uh, the issue uh, management and tracking systems. Okay, and the final part of software configuration management is release management. Again, this is typically a process that is not uh, totally automated. This is much about deciding how we do releases. What, uh, what are the different kinds of releases that we do? So it's about managing what we release, to whom, and when, under what conditions. If we do software products, we often have release cycles. We release, for example, one main release every year, and then we do update releases, point releases, a few times during the year. Uh, if we have customer projects, we might have pre-release, and we might have final releases, and so on. So, uh, release management is, first of all, about deciding what are the release types we will have. And then we have related business decisions that are also very important. That is, do we charge for all new releases or updates? Do customers pay us a fixed sum to get all updates with you? Do we charge, which is today very typical, only for big main releases? They give the less important releases that add less functionality or contain just bug fixes for free. So one thing you need to deal with in uh, software engineering also is deciding upon what kind of re releases you have and what are the circumstances? Do you release daily or weekly? Which typically might not be a very good idea, but you could decide to do that. Do you ship on uh, a need base, but a need basis? That is, whenever you have something that needs to be updated, you ship an update. Then you would need to think about how do you distribute those updates. Today, the answer tends to be simple. In most cases, you do it over the net. Many years ago, it wasn't that simple. Releasing an update might have meant, for example, making millions of CDs, which, is, which can be quite expensive. But release management is deciding upon what releases you have and deciding upon how and when to release those. We typically have some different kinds of classifications that you can do. We have an alpha release, which is a release to a select number of customers or even internal customers. For example, our sales marketing and sales organization might get an alpha release to test it before we ship it even outside the organization. We might have a beta release to a larger set of either select or self-selected set of customers. Then we would have a final release. And then we can have updates and upgrade releases and patches and emergency fixes. And we have the idea terms of service back for example, introduced by Microsoft and so on. But the things you need to deal with in, in release management is doing the classification and deciding uh, how to update them. And again, there is no single right way of doing this. In certain cases, and often today, you get the updates automatically over the net for free to all installations. In certain businesses, uh, getting an update to a customer can be a very expensive project for both you and the customer. And the customer might have problems with downtime, 
downtime and so on. So, uh, it's a, not at all true that in all cases it's just a matter of putting an update on a server. So, this is something, again, the exact uh, decisions for what the releases are, how often you do them, how you deliver them, and so on, is something that is intimately tied to your business model uh, and the customers you are working with. Okay, distribution of releases today, is, uh, it can be, of course, on physical media. Uh, you can use network media. Or you can deliver your software as a service, something that we'll also talk about more later. Yeah. Is there a possible difference between updates and upgrades, or are they just different versions of the same thing? I think they are. You, you can use them to, uh, as synonyms. It, you might, of course, argue that an upgrade would might add new features as an update. It must, it must be part I don't think that's a good way of thinking about it. I think they are in practice synonyms. Software as a service, we'll talk more about that later. Of course, there, a good example might be Google. You don't install anything. You just use it. Google Docs, software as a service. And what you see, of course, today is that the pure model of software as a service in the sense that you have no clients, well, WebEx might be another example of a typical software as a service. Uh, you don't buy the software and install it on your computer and use it to use a service that is provided mainly over the net. Still, uh, you often also, in the case of WebEx, get a small client that gets downloaded on, on your computer. So, but that's a model that we're going to uh, talk more about in the second part. We are having a lecture on software as a service. But that is also a way of, of of dealing with your uh, releases. 